Today on The Black Goat, we talk about dissertations. Do they serve a purpose, or are they vestigial features of an old way of doing science? And a letter about what to do about a toxic and abusive advisor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullet, and it's cold and flu season, and uh, or that's coming upon us. I know everyone's got their flu shots. Are you uh, drinking your chicken soup and taking your vitamin C as well? <laughs> you guys are going to be in so much trouble when I live in the Southern Hemisphere and you can't use the seasons anymore as a chit-chat topic. Uh, <laughs> no, we we can. We'll yeah, just, we, uh, we'll, we just we'll do what Americans do about Australians and just forget that that's a difference and ignore it. But, okay, right? That's cool. uh, that's the standard practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we were chatting before we got started about like alternative medicines and stuff like that. Like, I don't know about you two. I uh, um, I have this weird in between because there's like I have these like loud skeptic voices in my head, um, but then you know. There's also, like, when you're miserable, you'll try anything uh-huh. kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Like, do you... And then there's, like, there's in-between stuff like zinc. I feel like zinc is in this sort of, like, evidentiary gray zone in-between. Um, what do you what do you think about, like, alternative medicine I think my, you know, for colds or anything else? My stance is, like, very inconsistent because pretty much any time anyone tells me, like, this will cure your illness, I think, like, that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> but, about traditional okay. medicine too, like well, nah. that's the thing. So like yeah. anything that like sounds a little bit alternative, I'm like yeah, 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 whatever. Um, but I also am really stubborn about taking um, taking like traditional medicine, um, and not necessarily because I don't think it works. I don't know. I have this like narrative about it, like masking my symptoms, but not actually making me feel better. And then I'll be sick for longer because like, I won't allow myself to rest probably. So I have like a lot, there's a lot of mythology going on. Um, and yeah. And then <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that, is that Hugo? Yeah. He's squeaking? like growling at his toy. I don't know what's going on. He's yeah, it's a squeaky toy. And then he's growling. He's uh, not like but- alternative medicine, I guess. <laughs> Okay. Folks, we have a, a fourth guest on the podcast today. Uh, Hugo Vizier will be uh, joining us, and actually a fifth, and his squeaky toy. He'll probably calm down in a minute. Sorry, Alexa. No, that's okay. Um, and then also, yeah, I don't know if um, there's a clear distinction between traditional medicine and alternative medicine. Like, I feel like it makes sense that plants sometimes make you feel better. Um so, and so much of traditional medicine, like, turns out to have been completely p-hacked and, you know, it doesn't actually work. Like, for migraines, for example, there's all kinds of, like, medicines that are approved for prescription and they're pretty expensive and have pretty bad side effects. And I just don't have enough trust in the medical research to subject myself to that. I'd just rather... So, like, I mean, also, alternative medicine is vague, right? So, like, yeah. drinking more water is, like, I'm more likely to try that for migraines than some of the prescription medicine. I don't suffer like very extreme migraines, so I can, it's easy for me to say that. But yeah, I think that there are plenty of things in alternative medicine that I would be willing to try and plenty of things in traditional medicine that I wouldn't be. Um, yeah, I, I, it isn't, it's funny. Like I remember the first time I 
learned that evidence-based medicine was like a separate category. (laughs) I just heard the term and I was like, these are the evidence-based. And I was like, wait, isn't it all, you know, and, and, you know, this was like when I was pretty young and, and, you know, you just sort of find out, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of what, uh, you know, mainstream doctors do is, is it's stuff that's passed down from, you know, through, through medical training, through internships, that stuff like that. Between that and placebo, which I don't, I don't know if like we still believe in the placebo effect, but I do. Um, but like, so sometimes I'll just do something just for the sake of doing something, and then if it like happens to correlate with me getting better that time, then I'm like, cool. Now, even if it was a placebo effect, yeah. it's gotten stronger. So like, I take Zequil on planes, like to, when I fly to Australia, and the last two times I've slept ten hours straight on the plane. So I'm like, cool. Zequil works really well. Is it probably what, what not is, that? What is Zequil? Uh, it's just a non-habit forming sleeping okay. aid that you can buy over the counter. Okay. Um, yeah, I I gotta say I'm I'm pretty like there there's definitely like there's extremes you know there's like crystals which I'm just like <laughs> get away from me with that you know and and they're not gonna hurt you. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, but no, I mean that that's actually like there's a there I I. People sometimes say that, and I actually, I know you were you were kidding, yeah. but I, I like I actually don't accept that because one, there's a lot of grift in mm, the alternative yeah. medicine world. There's a lot of scamming, and two, when people take things that aren't effective, I think it often it's a substitution, right? It's not just like like what people. If you think you're doing something, then you become demotivated to do other right, things, right. and so I I do honest. So so like I I also I separate out like what individuals do, which is like they're everybody. I think is mm-hmm. just trying to do the best, whether it's for their own health or if they're taking care of someone else for that. Versus like the sort of the people creating this stuff and the systemic factors. But I actually do like beyond just like live and let live with some of this stuff. Um, it really is. It's grift. It's yeah. It's you no. Know, I definitely. I think, yeah, yeah, like loudly protesting against the people like, you know, taking other people's money for this stuff and and saying that it works better than other stuff that actually works. I think all of that we should absolutely criticize. But I think one thing I'm curious about is if if like a family member believed that something like crystals or whatever was going to help you and you don't believe it, but like they just want to put a crystal in your room or they just want, you know, and it... Uh on a personal level, that's not going to hurt you, right? Like on a broader society level, it might cause harm, but you letting them do this thing isn't going to like make you worse in the short term. So like I've done things, yeah, like for a partner who just wants me to try this thing and I'm like, well, they suffer from me suffering too. So like, I feel like I owe it to them to show Uh them that I'll try it. And I mean, I don't believe it's going to work, but at least then they don't think I'm being stubborn and yeah, and maybe this is a little different than crystals that that are like not pleasant or unpleasant, I assume. Um, but like a lot of the things that people suggest are actually like pleasant, like <laughs> like drinking certain kinds of tea or like eating comfort food or <laughs> I don't know. Those like serum things that I don't know. Um or like rubbing a like a, what do you call that stuff? Um, mentholatum on your no. Maybe yeah. Most of that stuff is like a pleasant experience, even if it might yeah. like not cure you. But I, I feel like that's, I mean, that's that's legit. Like soothing and comfort when you're not feeling well is like, if anything, you know, traditional medicine ought to be doing more of that. I think, you know, there have been some direct, like you talk to people who do pain care, you talk to people who do hospice, and a lot of people will say like, you know, within traditional medicine, we need to get better at acknowledging that those are important. So I feel like that's that's legit. It's It's when... 
when someone says something's actually going to cure you and it doesn't have those extra things, you know, like take this, you know, pointless, you know, inert substance or homeopathy or things like that. I grew up on homeopathy. I think we talked about this before. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys think that you're, um, you're tough when you're sick? I have an, I have an opinion about Samin. I don't know about Sanjay. I no, I, I don't think I'm especially tough or especially not, but I definitely like, so like when I, when I have a, I had this funny experience this summer where when we went to Sips, which was in the Netherlands and I had a cold and I got like, got a cold, came down with a cold on the plane ride over and it was, it was pretty bad. And so I always take medicine for my symptoms. Uh, I take Dayquil usually, and it, it really does like, it, it doesn't make the cold go away, but it, it really alleviates the symptoms. So I can just like, if I, especially if I have to like go to work or whatever, just so I can deal. And so I was like looking around for whatever, like trying to find out what the Dutch equivalent of this is. And, and you know, I'm here, I'm yeah. in the Netherlands, like I, I don't know, this. whatever. And I like, I, so I start like, first I start getting on the internet and I'm like looking in forums, like, you know, what is, what is Dutch for Dayquil or whatever. And I'm finding all these forums of like U.S. travelers who've been in the Netherlands and gotten sick saying basically like, yeah, they're not going to help. Like if you you go to a doctor, they're going to laugh at you. And uh, the Dutch just don't believe in like, you know, and, and so I managed to find this, like, there's like one nasal spray that like, you know, that they'll, they'll like sigh and roll their eyes and hand to you. But they, you know, they really apparently don't like they, they really do have like culturally, I think. And, and everyone said, like, everyone kept saying, if you go to a doctor, I'm like, I'm not going to go to a fucking doctor. Just, like, give me some DayQuil or something. But they mm-hmm. said, like, if you go to a doctor, they'll just, they'll look at you and they'll say, just, like, tough it out. Um, uh-huh. And so I'm not like that. So, yeah. I think that I have that a little bit, too. I mean, I think that in many, in many cases, Canada falls between um, the U.S. and Europe on these sort of, like, cultural factors. And I think that... Canada sells codeine over the counter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And muscle relaxers. <laughs> right. Um, they're, they're like tough it out, but their definition of tough is like <laughs> being on opioids or whatever. <laughs> go big or go home. Um, but yeah, th- I think that's why I like have a weird thing about Dayquil and stuff like that. I don't usually take medi- medicines like that. So what's your impression of Samin? I really want to hear this because I don't have any. I, I want to know I what she this. says first. I think I'm okay. in the middle too. I think I'm like very inclined towards self-pity. I think you're I try. really tough. Like, no, I'm not. That's not true. That's that is a tough person would say that they're self pitying, wouldn't they? She, yeah, like she'll get migraines and she'll be like, "I have a bit of a headache, but if you still want to go out, I'll go out." Oh, so I don't. My migraines aren't as bad as some people's, and I yeah. I actually have come to think that if I don't distract myself, they're much much worse. So I actually, I yeah, I still like teach or do other things, and actually during the time that I'm doing the things, they feel a little bit better. Uh-huh. Which See, some people Alexa, are going to say she, that's not a migraine because they can't do those things when you have like a full blown migraine. Yeah, we were talking about like comfort and self soothing and going out with you is yeah. comfort <laughs> and self soothing when she has a migraine. It all it all fits together. It all comes around. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's a good uh, that's a good place to to do our letter. Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, the letter is a little bit longer. Uh, today, but it's a pretty entertaining letter, or maybe entertaining is not the right word, engaging. Um, Okay, Dear the Black Goat, my question is, how should you officially slash unofficially deal with mid-career academics who have, and are sometimes proud of, a very negative ego slash personality? 
Extremely long story short, after seven years of working as a lab tech manager in a physical science lab, I decided to pursue a PhD with a researcher, let's call them Dr. Y, who I was co-author with on a couple of papers um, and knew from field expeditions, conferences, and other interactions. Dr. Y's public persona was slightly arrogant, a little rough around the edges, but generally likable in my opinion. People, Dr. Y's students included, told me to expect hard work in his lab, and I was okay with that because I respected the research and I worked alongside grad students in my old advisor's lab and understood the demands they faced. Only after joining the Y lab and moving across the country did Dr. Y's actual persona reveal itself. He proudly boasted, yeah, this one student of mine quit once because of some mental illness possibly induced by me. I essentially broke her. Later, he said that um, he said that he saw that student working at the local home improvement store and bragged that she turned away when they made eye contact. He purposely obfus- sorry, obfuscated research directions on a proposal edit. He completely rewrote the intro, added um, citation markers for the concepts he included, and said, this is your proposal. Do your own lit search. When I asked him to forward the papers, he cited. Uh, when I confronted him about needing more work-life balance, he mocked me um, in... Re- He mocked my in-recovery mental health issue and said, your wife will have to get used to being alone because you will be spending more and more time in the lab and your personal life is going to get less and less while making a pinching motion with his fingers. I tried to find a middle ground, but it was his way or the highway. I could go on, unfortunately. I left the program after two weeks of dealing with his persona. I didn't necessarily want to officially report Dr. Y's actions uh, because I have been told that it would be career suicide but I also want people slash future students to know what kind of person he actually is. He is definitely a two-sided coin and knows when and how to show the good side. So what is your opinion on how to deal with negative people in academia? I know you've talked about how there is institutional incentive to look the other way, but then the question is, uh, what can people actually do about it? Sincerely, I just want to do research, not deal with a man-child as an advisor. So I feel like the... The Dutch doctor approach is really important here, which is like, I mean, this is grad school, guys. Like, you got to deal with this. <laughs> this is just what it's. No, I, I, I shouldn't even be making light. I, I got to say this. This letter had we cut some other things out of, like some other examples out of this letter. There were. Uh, it is, yeah, when I, I think, Alexa, you were right to both say entertaining and then take that back because this actually happened to somebody. But right. it is sometimes I'm amazed at how awful people can be in the details like you know that there are awful people but it's like holy shit right um, these concrete so that was kind of my reaction are... i'm like, holy so shit. happy that this person left the program after two weeks like i when i got to that part of the letter i was like what like you never hear that and it makes me so happy and so i wanted to do this letter just for that example of like it's possible to do um Right. Yeah. You, as you read the letter, you're I'm like waiting for this person to be like, and I've been here for four and a half years. And like, how do I get out of this? Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder I wonder if the extremity of it is part of what helped that happen, because I feel like a lot of times you you know, when it's the person who's been in for four and a half years, it's either less extreme behavior or it's just be it maybe it, it eventually is, is extreme, but it reveals itself so slowly that, yeah. you know, they feel too invested or whatever. Mm-hmm. So whatever it was. Thank, yeah, I agree with you, Samin. Like, I think, I think, like, endorsing people seeing leaving as as an option, both for their own sanity, but also like, you know, because there's so much pressure not to, and it it kind of pushes it. I think it it helps others by 
not setting a norm that's too strong, but by sort of setting an example, I guess. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah, you can do that. And I mean, I, I certainly agree that this is a very extreme example, but I think it's even sometimes tricky to detect and recognize these extreme examples in the position of like somebody who's a new graduate student because you don't have a lot of other examples and you don't necessarily know what the norms are. Now, mm-hmm. I, you know, it seems maybe like common sense that if somebody says like I induce mental health issues in my um, in people who are around me that you should avoid them. Um, but also we see sort of much milder versions of that narrative often where um, where grad students like brag about basically um, mental health issues that are uh, the consequence of working all the time or um, being really, really stressed out about grad school and advisors maybe endorsing those kinds of um, behaviors. So in, I think in it a way takes it's not like that just crazy. It's so hard to like keep your own sense of reality and trust your own sense of reality when a much, much more senior person who has control over everything who has way more experience is gaslighting you. Like I right. think that's yeah. so admirable and so right. hard to do. And I mean, uh, yeah, I just think it's so amazing that this person saw through it so quickly and had entrusted their own gut feeling that they shouldn't have to put up with this. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think about, so this person does ask a little bit, or they mention the idea of reporting Dr. Y's actions. Um, what what would you guys do about that? Yeah, so they say it would be career, su- they say they left the program, they also say it would be career suicide, so presumably they they want to get back. And I think they, in the we cut out a part where they said, they talked about reasons why they couldn't transfer programs, so I think this, I'm assuming, let's presume that this person wants to go back to graduate school eventually. And because and, otherwise it, I don't see, if you were like done with academia, I don't see how it would be career suicide unless, you know, you're going into policy, this person's big in policy or something, but whatever. Like, so so let, let's assume that that conflict is there. Because if it's not, then, then, you know, if there's no downside, then it would be, um, I think there'd be much less to speak against coming forward. But, but I think, I, I would say even, even with the the issue at play that this person might end up going into the field and be in the same field as Dr. Y and et cetera eventually. I I think that I, I understand and sympathize with and definitely don't want to discount all of the pressures against reporting, but I also think that it's possible to, like, number one, I think it's possible to overestimate them. Like, this, these behaviors are so extreme and were witnessed by multiple people and all that kind of stuff that, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's out there. It's also affecting other people and it sucks that you're the low power person. And I don't want to say like it's your responsibility, but like it is an opportunity to help the current people in the lab and prevent others from getting into that situation. And I do think the like, I mean, so much depends on who you'd be reporting to and how seriously they're likely to take it, right? But if if there is a reasonable chance that you can reach somebody who would take this seriously, either because they're doing their job or because they'd be embarrassed not to or pressured not to, I think I, I do sometimes see in lesser cases like people overestimating the chance of retaliation as a way to just talk themselves out of something that's uncomfortable. And it is extremely uncomfortable to come forward and have to talk about these kinds of things. But I would, I would, I guess I want to put in a plug to, I don't want to say definitely go forward because I don't know all the details, but I want to, 
I want to encourage anyone in this situation to really push themselves through any any kind of disinclination they have and to think about the reasons why they should do it because this is just extreme and there are going to continue to be people exposed to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what's frustrating is that there are probably other people in much more senior positions in the department who know that this person is like this, and so why aren't they doing something about it? Like, yeah, it's hard to know. Yeah. I've seen I, again, I, not not as extreme as this, but there, I've seen. It depends how the department is structured. It depends if the students are afraid of the advisor. I've seen situations where stuff it people takes. Don't know. It, yeah, yeah, like. It, what it, yeah. what would it take for that to happen? It would take grad students gossiping to professors or grad right. students gossiping to other go- grad students who gossip to professors. And if it's a department where labs are pretty siloed and where the culture is more hierarchical, that very well might not be happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I wouldn't assume... I, I, I guess, could see it going yeah. that way, Samin, but I could see it yeah. not also. I mean, in terms of their broader question of like how... What can people actually do about it? I think I bet there are a lot of department chairs out there who do know about some problem cases in their department. Probably not this extreme very often, but like, why did like stop letting them take grad students? I just don't understand. At a minimum, right? Like, maybe you can't punish them because you don't have like really hard evidence or something like that. But like, I just don't understand why there's so many departments where people basically know what's going on and they still let that person take new grad students. But how would that work without concrete evidence? Like, in my department, I don't know what the chair would do to stop a faculty member from taking grad students based on them having a bad reputation as a mean advisor. Yeah, it's probably very different in each case, right? It depends, like, how much evidence you do have and also if there are other things. Like, in the cases I'm, like, vaguely... In cases that are much weaker than this, but that I'm, like, thinking of... There were there are other things you could use as reasons to not let them take students. Like often, they're also their lab is not very productive because the students either transfer to other labs or drop out or aren't are too unhappy to be productive or whatever. Yeah. So you could say like, look, you haven't produced, you haven't like been able to mentor a grad student to a position where they were able to fulfill their career goals. So like, we're gonna. You know, I don't know. I feel like there are often side effects that can be used as a reason. I just don't think it's as hard as all that often. I mean, it really depends on the individual case and on the individual policies in that department. But I feel like a lot of people look the other way or throw their hands up and say, well, there's nothing we can do. It's mm-hmm. like their yeah. word against theirs or whatever. In, in some ways, this this is an easier case sort of administratively or whatever because it's so extreme, because I think what what makes it possible to act is when you start invoking things that there are actual rules about. And I would I would not stop short of using terms like abusive, harassment, hostile environment to characterize what this person is saying. And once you start using those those words, those invoke regulations, those invoke laws, those will get a university's attention if for no other reason then they start to get worried that they're going to get sued if they don't do something about it so so in a case of just somebody being like a pain in the ass advisor um where it's more gray it can be harder but and i would say to this person that if they're going to start talking about this um i mean you have to be careful like not to overreach but um if you say i experienced this as a hostile climate i i experienced this as abusive behavior those those terms will will require people to act because they will be afraid that if if it comes out that they were told 
some you know a grad student said I was being harassed and they did nothing about it they're going to be in trouble so you can you maybe you can hear through me I have a uh, I think that there are some terrific people in all parts of universities but as a systemic issue I have a pretty low opinion of like goodwill on this stuff I kind of think like you have to invoke rules and so I mean the other thing I would say is if you are going to report it um, having some sense of <laughs> who to report it to and what their incentives and responsibilities are. So, for example, I mean, this doesn't, because this doesn't sound, I'm not sure if this is a Title IX case. I tend to think of Title IX as gender-based. I don't know if there are other things. But, um, like, one issue with Title IX offices is that they are not responsible for students' well-being or students' interests. They are responsible for the universities. And the so insofar as the university has an interest in not getting in trouble for a hostile climate there they'll be somewhat aligned with you but they don't have an obligation to look out for you so I would say going to people who do and so it might depend if if you have a grad student union going to a union rep um, if there's if your university has an ombuds person they don't have power but they can help advise you and they are typically an, an ombuds is supposed to be separated from these incentive structures um, if you, you know, uh, um, yeah, so thinking about those, those kinds of, and I, I, that's not exclusive, like you can and should also talk to people in sort of conventional administrative roles, but also like making sure you have somebody, if possible, within the institution. And then also if you can get it, somebody outside of it who's willing to like be supportive, um, you know, whether it's a, a, you know, a faculty member somewhere else or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is like the uh, whisper networks or things like that, which we've also talked about before. But I think it's totally fine if you know people who are applying to work with Dr. Y. I think it's totally fine to tell them your honest experience. Um, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you, yeah, there are, there are legal issues if you like post publicly about things that aren't verifiable. You could get accused of defamation or things like that. But if you just tell what happened to you, I, I don't. I think you're probably okay. Yeah. And and also like the whisper net- network thing of like getting together with other people currently or former like this person mentions, uh, you know, a former student who, you know, this person was bragging that they broke them. Like if, if it's a if if there are other people who are willing to come forward with you and it's a group that can be more powerful as well, because now you have, you know, multiple corroborating witnesses, it's harder to ignore a group of people. I mean, I don't want to say any of this is easy, right? We've seen, we've seen some very high-profile cases of. I mean, I think about like Dartmouth yeah. being an example, right? Of how or much Rochester. It took, or Rochester, yep. Um, and so, there are absolutely cases of. And so, I would say to this person, if you start making these inquiries or reporting, and you really do get the sense that you're going to be retaliated against, like it's okay to start down that road, and for your own, if you have to for your own protection, I would never tell anybody who's been a victim of an abusive situation that they have to push it through and report it. Um, so I don't. What I said earlier about like people sometimes talk themselves out of it, I absolutely don't want to downplay the fact that there are retaliatory situations, there are unsupportive situations, but it could be worth starting to make those inquiries and to, to try to find out. And maybe you'll discover that there are people that in the institution that would act on it. I'm often surprised at how bad our informal networks are at affecting these people's reputations. Like yeah. I have this fantasy that we should all just be able to coordinate and just no one would ever agree to go work with these people again or collaborate with them again or whatever. But mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't work as well as you might think. 
Yeah. Anybody have anything else? This feels, this does feel tough, I guess. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, great job getting out. I think if other yes. people yeah. here are in, feel like they're in similar situations, consider getting out. There I feel like this person doesn't need do our with advice. Your life. Yeah. And if, yeah, if that is the only thing you've done, you've done something really important and something that a lot of people have difficulty doing. So yeah, uh, all this stuff about like going further. And I mean, the person asked like, what, you know, what else could I do or whatever? And, and so we talked about that, but absolutely like, yeah. I guess another thing the rest important. of us can do is consider accepting students who quit other programs. Yeah. Um, I think there's often like a stain on their record, but I think we should consider that some of them are in this situation and it's actually really admirable. You want those kinds of students working with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's that's an interesting. I hadn't thought of this before. That that's another reason the Whisper Network can be helpful is that if if this person is known outside of their institution for being like this, then that that ends up helping the people that want to transfer out because right. then there's less of that you know question like is this person leaving because their lab was bad or because they're terrible or mm-hmm. whatever. It's like nope, we know this person's awful and and you know and and so they everybody sort of comes with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you uh, to our letter writer. I just want to do research, not deal with a man-child as an advisor. Um, and uh, does that that doesn't condense to a good acronym, does it? Anyway, um, but th- thank you for your letter. And uh, yeah, if you're listening and you would like to send us a letter to with some for some advice with a dilemma, etc., uh, to for us to read and talk about on the podcast, you can reach us. Letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. You can reach us with any other thoughts, feedback as well about the podcast. Um, you can tweet at us. We're at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod. Um, we are, you can rate us. If you rate us on iTunes, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, um, if you rate, I was just reading the other day, apparently Spotify is like now becoming a big thing for podcasts and they're going to start recommending podcasts. So if you, if you listen to us on Spotify and you, or, or if you don't and you just follow us anyway, so the algorithm, uh, tells other people to listen to us, uh, that's nice. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and thank you everybody for listening. Uh, cause we, Um, We love getting feedback, and we love just knowing that you're out there. Okay, so our main topic today is dissertations. Uh, We wanted to talk about, uh, I think we're going to sort of, there may be a couple different things we're going to talk about. One is, I think, to start with just like sort of stepping back. I mean, there's a lot of things we do in academia. There's a lot of things that happen in grad school that it's like we've been doing it this way forever. Mm -hmm. We do, and so this is just how it works. This is, and dissertations might fall into that category that like nobody's nobody gets into a phd program and goes like hmm should i do a dissertation or even like you know i don't think a lot of people ask like why am i doing a dissertation Mm -hmm. it's just like that's kind of what a phd is um at least in the u.s i there maybe there are other models elsewhere Mm -hmm. i don't i don't want to presume but um uh yeah i think maybe we wanted to start with just sort of stepping back and saying like what is a dissertation what is it supposed to be doing is it doing that yeah Um, why like why dissertations yeah I've thought about this a little bit so I've thought about it in the con the context of like what is the consequence of the dissertation model for um 
the research that's produced by a field as a whole. And sometimes I am frustrated with dissertations for that reason, because I think that it sort of like pushes the research we do to fit into a certain kind of model that's like um, something that can be done in a couple of years. That's sort of like this, like one clean, small package. Um, usually dissertations are not like highly collaborative. Um, and so I guess I think that it maybe encourages doing smaller, more siloed studies, um, which I think is pretty common for um, the field of social psychology. And I think there are a lot of negative consequences to that. Um, as I was thinking about the topic as something that we were going to talk about today, um, I do think that I see a lot of merit to dissertations as a training tool. Um, so as I was thinking about like our, yeah, our dissertations, vestigial could we just get rid of them and what would training look like without them maybe I'm just sort of like set in my ways or this I'm just used to thinking of training as working this way but I do think there's something maybe important about um students having a project that they're definitely like the main drivers on um that should reflect usually like some of the um knowledge and skills that they've gained in the first couple of years in the program um and then something that they follow through from start to finish. Uh, so I do think that seems valuable to me as a, a training tool. So I, w I felt sort of caught in the middle in, in terms of my opinion on dissertations. Yeah, that's okay. kind of convincing. But I feel like, I mean, <laughs> Thanks, I actually had never, questioned, <laughs> I had never questioned dissertations before uh, the person suggested, someone wrote in and suggested this to us as a potential topic but I was pretty convinced by their yeah uh, they actually weren't really stating a position but they asked questions like are they an elaborate hazing ritual and I was yeah. like huh, <laughs> are they yeah maybe they are right and so I was like starting to think yeah why do we even have dissertations I don't really like them and like I can think of problems like like especially if not everybody's going to go on to be a PI of a research lab right which if that's not if you don't have to have be trained for that in order to get a PhD like a PhD could be training you for other kinds of careers which that's just the reality whether we want to whether that's what we want or not. And I think uh -huh. it's fine. I think it's great. But like even people who th think that the PT shouldn't be for that, it just is. Like, mm -hmm. So then if someone's really, really good at one part of the research process and they know that that's, they're going to find a job where they can be good at that and be compensated for that, then do we really need them to prove that they can be the main driver and oversee the project from start to finish? What if, what if they like play that critical role on like five other people's projects and do a really, really good job and then can get hired in a position that really values that. Yeah, I think that's Would a really that good point. Be good enough? I mean, I think so, that I have a student but, but who falls into that category pretty obviously. Like I have a student who um, wants a PhD to get a job in industry where he will never have to write an introduction. And <laughs> he really hates writing an intro introductions. Um, and it's going to be miserable for him as he writes his dissertation. Um, yeah, so I think that the dissertation process probably doesn't serve him particularly well because um, he'll just have to slog through something that he hates that he ultimately won't have to do. Yeah, so I want to I want to give a, a little bit of a counterweight to this, which is you know like what what is a PhD about, right? Because right. I kind of think like if if you don't you know one answer is like maybe we should change the PhD. The other answer is like maybe. The, someone who I'm not saying your student Alexa but I'm saying like someone who only w wants to do one part of the process maybe a PhD isn't the right yeah, thing for I've them thought right? about so that too. you know what I think of a PhD for is for is it's for 
contributing to or creating new knowledge, right? That's what it's, and it is, it's a degree, it's an education. So you're learning how to, how to create new knowledge. And, you know, the, the sort of the structure of graduate programs is like, you have a, you know, we, we have these words that we just kind of toss around and they, we repeat them so much, we become numb to them. But like, it's either called like a preliminary exam or a qualifying exam. And it used to actually be an exam. And the idea is like, you, you get to a certain point and you traditionally what you had to do was like demonstrate that you had you know knowledge both broadly of your sort of general field but also in-depth knowledge of what you're going to do that was preliminary to or qualified you to be a candidate and then the phd is or sorry the dissertation is like you're doing you know so first you're like learning all the knowledge you need to do and then the dissertation is you are actually doing the act of creating new knowledge and contributing to, to what, if you're in the sciences, what science knows or, or whatever. Um, and so, so I'm, I think like, I, I still feel like that's what a PhD is for in the broadest sense. And I think, I think these, to me, so to me, a lot of these questions about like, as science becomes more collaborative, like we should be revisiting, you know, what does it mean to contribute to new knowledge or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But if like, if what you want to do is like get really good at run, at doing statistics and run analyses for people, and you're not creating new knowledge in statistics, but you're learning a lot of stuff and and, and applying it in really cool, interesting situations, like that's what a master's degree is for. Um, and I, that's not like a dismissal. That's a like a PhD is for something else. It's just a different thing. Um, I'm not sure the thing that you're describing a PhD is for really exists. Like I'm not sure that there are people who can master all parts of it really well and like or even if it exists i don't think it's like a very effective I, i'm not system. that's not what i'm saying yeah that's not what i'm saying that they're so mastering then it, all of but it. then it's hard to where do you draw the line between like getting really really good at one or two parts of it versus three or four or like i don't know like i think it gets really blurry about where how much is enough diversity of skills or being i don't know but that, I mean, that is what the, the dissertation, the, the model of like it being, you're taking a, an intellectual leadership role in a project. It doesn't mean that you, and, and I think that's where as science right. and, and as research becomes more collaborative, the idea that you have the deep expertise in every piece of something. I don't, I don't know that that was ever true, but I certainly don't think that has to be true now. But, but the idea that you are taking the, a position of independent intellectual leadership um, and, and it's not the end point because obviously like we all continue hopefully to develop after we get our PhDs and that kind of thing. Um, but that's, it's, it's saying like, okay, like the point of a PhD is to be a person that's creating new knowledge. And so the dissertation is like, now you're doing that. Um, mm -hmm. And just as the same, like, I don't know everything. I, in fact, the, the further I've gotten in my career, the less I know about all parts of my research because you know, I, it used to be the case that when I ran a study, I would know how to do any part of the study. And like, it was just a division of labor issue. Nowadays, like my grad students are doing shit that I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, right? That doesn't mean that I'm like, less of a scientist, I think it just means that I'm doing more complex work. Um, right. And broader work. So so it's not I don't I don't hold that up for the dissertation either. Yeah, I mean, I think that Sanjay, you're sort of like highlighting that there's a distinction between like being a leader on a project um, and taking that sort of like leadership role consistently um, versus uh, being sort of 
a person who plays a specific assigned role on a project um, that might be more relevant to the like PhD as a degree than being good at everything versus being good at one thing. Um, yeah. And I think I'm pretty on board with seeing a PhD as that, as training people to be leaders on research projects. Yeah, and then maybe we could modify the dissertation to allow it to be more collaborative as long as the person whose dissertation it is is the one taking on the leadership role yeah. and initiating it and delegating things and so on. So that's yeah, somebody right. who could do a lot of it and is like the main driving force behind it, but like needs collaborators for specific parts of it. First of all, that's already probably what's happening in many mm-hmm. cases, but they're not getting credit. Um, but also, yeah, like then we could separate out the leadership piece from you have to do everything which mm-hmm. right now yeah. are conflated in the dissertation. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm interested actually in, in because I'm wondering if, may, maybe we don't, but I, I'm wondering if we have different sort of experiences or models in mind. And so maybe we're just coming from different places. Like to me, because I did my graduate work on a 40 year longitudinal project, it just, it always kind of made sense that, uh, and that was my dissertation was on data from that. So it always made sense that like the research project is like, yeah, I didn't like, start the research project I didn't like collect all the data myself or whatever um it was the 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 data collection the the study was was much bigger than me much bigger than than any graduate student could have been um but uh but I you know so so it just sort of makes sense that like within the context and and I've been on a lot of dissertations that have been longitudinal studies or that have been a large lab data collection over many years where somebody is just taking so it's not that the the labor of collecting the data or that kind of stuff is all them but it's they're taking a research question and conceptually they're taking leadership on that and and you know and it can be a piece of a larger set of questions everything is a piece of a larger set of questions and so I guess maybe but I don't know because I I have had this conversation with with people where they feel like especially they come from a more experimental discipline they feel you know they feel like the the dissertation is supposed to be this person ran the study themselves and sometimes there's a little bit of a culture clash when they interface with people from like <laughs> developmental or other things like that but I'm, I mean what are what are you guys coming more from that sort of you got to do it yourself model is that maybe why we're sort of having this different viewpoint um I think that like my experience is pretty consistent with yours Sanjay yeah um, th- I definitely think that there are um, different perceptions in different areas of my department in terms of like the value of what like what you would have to do when you're using existing data. I think I have been that person where um, somebody came in and proposed a dissertation with proposed what I thought seemed like relatively simple analyses on existing data. And I was sort of like, is that enough for a dissertation you know like where is where's all the work that you're gonna have to do um and part of that is just like my own um my own ignorance and yeah I think part of it is that there's like a lot of variability in what's perceived as enough for a dissertation yeah I'm not sure I have like strong views about what would or wouldn't fly in the committees I've been part of but I think we just don't think about it very much. Like, I think it'd be really interesting to engage in the thought experiments. Yeah, of like, me too. What if somebody wanted to lead a many labs project or a triple R yeah. or something like that? Would that count as a decision? What if somebody 
wanted to write a stage one registered report but didn't have the resources to carry it out so they were just going to get to the point of stage one approval and then they would like post it publicly and see if other people could help carry it out or something like that would that be enough of an intellectual contribution or like Mm -hmm. or you know i think it'd be really interesting to think about all the different ways that someone could do parts of a research project um, and whether that would count as enough yeah, intellectual leadership, whether that would count as enough skills and things like that. Um, yeah, I think the fact that we don't, like, I don't think about this very much. I don't, we don't ask ourselves very much about this and about, like, not what's best for the student, but also what's best for science. And, yeah, like, what goals is it achieving to require that they do, that, yeah, whatever counts or doesn't count as a dissertation, like, why do we have those rules? And, and then I also think an interesting question is the oral defense that I've been in programs where that happens only at the proposal stage or only at the final stage or both. But what purpose that serves and does it have to be that way? And if somebody is really bad at that, is that prohibitive for getting a PhD? Like if they, they're just too anxious to do well in that kind of situation, like is that, a, is that something they should be able to do to get, earn the PhD? And do people sometimes, committee members sometimes use it as an opportunity to do something like hazing? Um, I was just gonna say, I do think there is like this sort of hazing component to especially defenses and prelims maybe. Um, and I guess hazing is a, by definition a negative word so maybe i shouldn't go on and talk about why hazing could be possibly good but maybe there's like... initiation ritual is that a better <laughs> yeah, term for sure. it <laughs> um but i do i think that there is something valuable to dissertations in that they feel like this like important symbolic goalpost. um and i remember having the experience in my dissertation defense of like one of the people on my committee was very like, you know, I'm going to ask you tough questions because I like think that you can't handle it, that kind of thing. That's like sort of hazing e. But like that felt valuable to me. Like I felt like I was being held to a high standard and I felt like my committee members had high expectations of me and the process felt um yeah, like symbolic and important. I felt like I had accomplished something. And now like being on the other side of dissertations I sometimes I'm conscious of trying to like make that process feel sort of like more official and symbolic in a way because it was like important to me in that role and they can feel very unglamorous from the other side when you're like scrambling to like read through it right before the meeting and you're like like come up with a couple of smart things to say about it and it just feels like um so much less significant. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't think of any situation. I can't imagine a situation where the the dissertation itself, the written document, I thought was good, and where like somebody's performance in the defense would make me not approve. Like to me, the and I haven't, I haven't seen instances of that. Maybe, maybe that's just because the opportunity hasn't come up. Because maybe just everyone who's written a good dissertation also defends it well or whatever. But it's, it's not something I would ever want to do, and it's not something I've seen in the dissertations I've been on. I'm definitely not saying it doesn't happen. But um, to me, what the defense feels like it's for is, 
you know, one is just you, it's a, you've got this written document, this dissertation, you can sort of clarify things. If there are things like the, mo- the modal case in, in dissertations I've been on is, is you ask for a set of revisions. And so it's a chance to sort of have a conversation with the person about why'd you do this? You know, what would you think? Like, I didn't see you address this issue. Was there a reason? Like, what would you think of doing blah, blah, blah? And, and you know, so a big part of it is just sort of like finding out more about it and, and sort of developing a set of revisions if those are necessary. And if, if they're not, you find out they're not. That happens once in a while. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I, I probably uh, do the like, uh, I'm going to ask you tough questions because I know you can handle it thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know, my, my grad students might write into us anonymously and say I do it way too much or whatever. <laughs> but, like, I actually, like, I, I, I maybe this is, like, perverse of me, but um, I really enjoy hearing what students have to say about, like, big conceptual questions that I don't know the answers to. Mm-hmm. So I usually try to tell them that's what I'm doing <laughs> so that they know, like, there's not uh, this isn't a trick question or there's not a right answer I'm looking for at the end. But, like, to me, that's, like, that's gravy that's like I'll, I'll do that if I feel like everything else is is going well I like I wouldn't do that if, if I thought that was gonna like somebody would become upset by that or, yeah. or doubt themselves or whatever I, I would never do that on purpose I hope I've never done that on accident and then yeah I also do like the sort of like again uh, I, I would not want like hazing to me feels like uh, creating something unpleasant for the sake of creating something unpleasant, mm-hmm. like bonding through or initiating someone through harm or the risk of harm or whatever. And and that to me is not good. But I do like the kind of ritual and celebratory yeah. part of it. Like, you know, dissertations almost, defenses almost always go well because if the advisor is doing their job, they shouldn't let the defense happen if the person's not ready for it. And that's typically the norm in my department. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's like, you're all there, the person's nervous, but everybody else, everyone in the committee kind of knows it's going to go well. And then at the end, they come back in, the committee says, great job, and you passed, or you passed with a couple of revisions or whatever, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief and applauds, and then somebody breaks out some champagne and, and like... And there's no, like, uh, you know, I wish we had, like, swords and shit like that, like they do in Finland. But it's still, like, I kind of, I think it's good to give somebody that moment of sort of celebration at the end when that happens, which it usually does. Mm-hmm. So since you both took the pro-defense position, I'll just take the <laughs> anti-defense <laughs> position for a kick. Because I hadn't, I honestly hadn't thought about this before the person suggested it as a topic. But I think over the course of thinking about it, my new position is that I think defenses are fine, but I think they should be public. I think having like five professors or six professors in a room with those student and no one else is there to see what happens. I think like I agree that most of the time it's fine, but I think it's it could go badly. So like, first of all, the professors, that's Hugo yawning, um, the professors could uh, not have like not have read the dissertation and like there's no con consequence for them there's no accountability for them or they could like get in fights with each other or like there could be politics behind the scenes that like people don't understand that's what's going on maybe the student defending even doesn't understand what's going on or like they'll ask yeah the student they'll ask the student to p-hack or things like that or they'll disagree with each other and there's no easy way to resolve it or like someone asks a student why did you do it this way that's obviously wrong and the true answer is because my advisor told me that was the right way or made me do it Mm -hmm. but I can't say that in front of everybody so I feel like if there was if other people could come to the defense, all of that would be less. So the professors would have to behave themselves better. 
all of these things would be less likely to come I don't into know. play. I mean, I, that, that is, I like that idea conceptually, but I, some dissertations are public. I, I'm i not yeah. 100% sure that ours are or are not. I think sometimes people's friends come to their dissertations. But if, if dissertations were public, it would mean in practice that maybe sometimes students' friends came. Like I, That's interesting because ours are public and they always come. Um, so I, it hadn't even occurred to me that... Uh, I was just I had our model in my mind and our, our our norms in my mind that like ours are they're public they're announced they're usually in like a small seminar room and so it's usually but they're almost always I can't remember if I've ever been to one here at UO that nobody came it's it's typically their friends in the grad program their lab mates sometimes their parents come yeah. like it's oh, that's cool. uh, um, uh you know, and and yeah, so that that is. I agree with you, Samin. That like the, um, I think I think the. I mean, I think all of them could be prone to abuse. Like, I think a public one, if you had somebody like that fucking person, the letter writer was about. <laughs> yeah. Like, they could just they might be sadistic enough to enjoy torturing someone in public. Um, but even better than than more people have. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I'm just saying. Like, I think they could all go wrong. But I, I agree with you that the the um the sort of the the private defense could go wrong. I also, my grad program, uh, we didn't do defenses at all. So you defended your proposal, um, and then at the end, you just had to get signatures from your committee. That's what we did. And so one thing was that it didn't have that ritual sense, um, which was whatever, like, disappointing. But the other thing, I saw this happen to somebody, which was that um, that opened up for a different kind of abuse, which was that their, their advisor basically held out the signature on their dissertation until they completed some other unrelated project because they were not going into academia and the advisor wanted it done before they left. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was incredibly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and this person experienced it as incredibly inappropriate too, and I'd say it was. And if if there had to be like a defense scheduled, like, I mean, the advisor could have come up with like plausible sounding reasons, but they would have they would have been, at least had to like mm -hmm. in public say, you know, they'd, if they really didn't want to sign the dissertation, they, they'd have to, like, they'd, they'd sort of have to hold that out under more scrutiny. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying they couldn't do it, but it, it would be a little bit harder. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think all, all of the models could be, um, could be abused, certainly. But, um, yeah, that, that's funny that you, I just, sometimes you just don't realize how yeah. everybody does things. Yeah, how different things are. Our, our, so ours in my department are public, but they're, like I said, they're usually in a small seminar room. I think some of our, like, I think I've heard our chemistry department, they have it in, like, a lecture hall. And, and it's, like, a big room also, and the whole, yeah. yeah really and, like, so I think, a, I think a ton of people show up and it's, like, that's it's so very cool. staged and, you know. Yeah. I think it's probably, it's probably, like, more, even more terrifying for the candidates. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um. I just don't like the atmosphere. So we also, we we have the model that you had in grad school, Sanjay, of like just defending the proposal, but it's in a room with only the committee and the student. And it used to be that the student was expected to bring food for the committee members, which also adds to that dynamic. It just felt very oh, much terrible. like we're holding something over you and you can't leave until we're all satisfied and no one will know what happened in this room. And I've never saw uh, it yeah. abused like in the few distribution committees I've been on here. So I'm not saying that, that I have any particular reason to worry about it, but it just seems like ripe for if there's tensions among the committee members between the students, some committee members, et cetera, it's just better for everyone if it's out in public, I think. Yeah. So something we haven't, do you guys mind if I shift the topic yeah, I was a little bit? Do that. Um, 
something we haven't talked about yet is how changes in the job market have interacted with changes or lack of changes in dissertations, right? So that model I talked about earlier, that you know, of like you learn a bunch of stuff, you take a qualifying or preliminary whatever exam or paper, and then you do a dissertation, like you know, that originates in an era where the dissertation was the one piece of research you produced in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And and nowadays, um, just the, if people are going into academia, or even for some non-academic jobs, the expectation is that you have more and more things, like you might have half a dozen things or a dozen things on your vita that potentially could have been a dissertation-sized project sometimes, um, or maybe a half or a third of one per paper or something like that. Um, and I, I, so, so yeah, so I feel like the, and I have sort of mixed feelings because, I mean, what we've done in my program with a lot of things is start to modify some of these requirements to just sort of keep pace with things. So, for example, people can now, for their preliminary exam, they can write a grant proposal. So they can write, like, an NRSA or a fellowship proposal or something like that. Um, so it's it's less of an exam and more of a, like, here's a thing you could do that will be useful to you later. Um, the, the dissertations now, and this, this has been around for a while, but it's becoming more common mm-hmm. to do, like, a bundle of papers rather than a traditional dissertation. And even when people do the traditional dissertation, less and less it's the like 200 page comprehensive explore everything and it's getting closer to like a jpsp style like Mm -hmm. punchier or shorter or whatever um so we've made some concessions to that but i'm i'm curious what you think about like just you know because i I, i'm of two minds like i want to i want to change in that way but i also like i don't want to lose sight of the fact that a phd is an education it's training that we have to do some things that are about training that aren't just like, well, just do all the things that a professor would do so you can build up a record of professory looking things. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I do think that when it comes to my own students, I try to make sure that their dissertation is as aligned as possible with the things that they need going on the job market. Um, so I didn't sort of see those goals, the like education training goal as separate from the getting professorly things on your on your CV um and yeah I sort of discourage my yeah maybe there's some sort of trade-off because like we've been talking about I do I do like some of the things that a dissertation represents or tries to accomplish and like the I think that like process is valuable um but I also try to I don't know, get my students to think of it as sort of just another project and one project that has a lot of like dressing attached to it, but um, but not prioritizing the like departmental guidelines or hurdles over just their own research program. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I agree, I think, and it varies by students, like students who are really cranking on research, I think it's easier to just sort of say like, I mean, sometimes it's literally like, okay, you've got like seven projects going on. Which one are we going to call your dissertation? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, and then other times it's it's more complex than that. Um, some of this is also has been like, 
sometimes it's a challenge to get different committee members on the same page. So I remember when I started out, there were some faculty in my department who really liked the old-fashioned 200-page dissertation model. And so you would have a dissertation where the amount of science was like a JPSP, like a 30 or 40-page journal article. Uh, what, what would go into a 30 or 40-page journal article? But they wanted a super long lit review that explores every issue. And they wanted a uh, you know, um, to analyze every side issue and every ancillary question and all the seven ways you could do this and whatever and all of that and then discussed and, and that kind of thing. And so I remember having like some sort of, you know, like negotiations with other faculty via the student, which I was felt bad about and would try to sort of go directly to the faculty. But it was like, got to get people on the same page about that. But I do, th I do feel like sometimes there's now, there's still like a different version of that where you know, like, do you just want them to do things that they would do in a in a journal article or a set of journal articles? Or do you want at all to a little bit a lot for them to like step back and like, if they're doing the bundle of papers, like, should they be programmatic? Do you have to have like, a chapter that ties them all together? Or is it literally just here's three things I did, um, etc. So I feel like we have new versions, but it's a similar kind of issue of like, yeah, just and I, I don't like the 200-page dissertation, and I especially don't like being on those committees because I have to read 200 also, pages. But yeah. I had a really hard time telling the difference between, like, it's going to genuinely be good for the student to do this really hard thing of, like, reviewing the entire literature on a topic and blah, blah, blah and they're going to grow from it and have a different perspective after they've been through it or whatever versus, like, I just want to see them sweat. Um, and I, I sometimes can't tell what the real motivation is behind some requirements. Or what, how much or people actually both. benefit from it. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how, how would we even measure that? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, did, mm -hmm. am I worse off for not having had to do any kind of qualifying exam? Like, my grad program, like, if you were, I think maybe if you had, like, submitted something for publication that counted or whatever. Like, there was, there was a way to get out of having to do any kind of, like, special thing that wasn't part of normal course of research, um, which I managed to do. And so now I see people in my program going through this hurdle and thinking, would I have had some kind of deeper understanding if I had done it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the, so like a bad instance of this, for example, this was a, when I was in grad school, this was about a prelim exam, not a dissertation, but it was a similar issue where I remember there was someone who was in a, um, uh, like a, a auditory perception lab who failed their prelim exam. And the reason they failed it was because they did what everybody else did which was like have a specialized focused topic that was leading into their dissertation and their advisor who hadn't told them they were going to do this which was a really awful thing to do um they came in and their advisor started quizzing them about like basic things about like the anatomy of the ear and that kind of thing um and and so it was this really awful thing where this person just wasn't prepared. They didn't think that was what it was about, so they hadn't studied. They weren't prepared to answer those questions off the top of their head, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought the way it went down was was awful. But the the rationale, I can see I can see a I can see a, a like non-awful version of this. The rationale was like, look, we're certifying that you're like a, a you know, a PhD is many things. It's it's training. It's doing research, but it's also a certification to the world. And, and the advisor's perspective, the way they defended what they did was, we're certifying to the world that you're an expert mm -hmm. in auditory perception. You should 
like anybody who's who's that, anybody who's telling the world they're an expert in this should be able to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and these aren't questions about what your research specifically narrowly is about, but they're like things you're supposed to understand in order to go on. And so the way it was done was bad, but there was a, I do sometimes see like when people I do sometimes see people approaching that in a constructive way, but that's their rationale. They want to say, and similarly with the dissertation, like, yeah, you wouldn't in a journal article do a comprehensive lit review, but you have to do this in order because the dissertation is more than a journal article. It's a, both a product and a demonstration that you know your area mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, I feel like it's very easy for that to go too far. And that's really the thing that the job market pressure pushes back against because that's not a thing that you're going to – I mean, maybe if you write a review paper or whatever, right. but um, that's not typically a thing that you would uh, that you would do as, like, a research active professional. Mm-hmm. Is this our uh, does does our uncomfortable silence mean that we're uh, we've we've exhausted the topic? Does anyone have anything else to say? I feel like we people. I've had several people now tell me that uh, uh, awkward pauses are our, are like our trademark. So I feel like we. I'm glad we. I don't think we have. I had people tell us there's like glitches in our recording because there's all these like long pauses. Where there's like a gap, and I'm like, nope, that's just us. That's just how a conversation goes. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's, why don't we wrap it up there then? Okay, that sounds okay. good. Um, all right, thank you everybody for listening to The Black Goat, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.